0: Uh, I want to just brag on David and EJ. They preached the last couple weeks and they did a phenomenal job. I was super proud of them. Yeah, give it up. So, um, so glad they're part of our our team and part of our ministry. And so that's the good news that we got guys like that. The bad news is I haven't preached in three weeks and so I got three weeks worth of material Today, yeah, so I hope you ate a good breakfast. If not, we got donuts over there. Uh, before you leave, um, on your way out, there is a little QR code. I- I'd really like for you to scan that. Uh, that's kind of our bulletin, and it informs you of all the things that we've got going on. If you're a lady uh, here in this place, uh, we've got so many opportunities for you coming up. So on this bulletin board, on the other side of this basketball goal, uh, there's a couple of uh, places where you can sign up and get more information about some of the things that we've got coming up. Uh, So please just be informed. I want you guys to be involved and connected to our church family. It's so important. It's so important. Uh, So make it a priority. Uh, Make sure you check that stuff out. Today I want to talk to you about the last temptation. The last temptation. We're looking at Mark chapter 14. And I'll just begin today by by saying that uh, resisting temptation is hard. Amen? It's tough. It's tough. There was a guy basically... Maybe the greatest Christian that's ever lived. Uh, Definitely the greatest Christian evangelist, probably the greatest Christian theologian. Um, I would argue the second most influential person who's ever lived, a guy named Paul. And Paul once said this, maybe you can relate to it, Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says, I don't understand why I act the way I do. Anybody else? I I don't understand sometimes. I don't do what I know is right, and I do the things that I hate. Can any of you relate to that? It's tough. It's tough. Uh, temptation is tempting, you know. That, that uh, the other day there was a cookie cake. We had a party and there was half a cookie cake left, and everybody was asleep except for me. Somebody, somebody's been there, and I'm I'm trying to eat healthier. I'm trying to be healthier, but this cake was calling out my name, so I resisted for seven minutes, and then I ate all of it. All that was rest left, I had half a gallon of milk. It was. And then the rest of the night, I was in sugar-induced shame and guilt. You know, I couldn't even hardly sleep. But it wasn't a pile of maggots there, was it? It was perfectly cooked cookie cake with chocolate chips and icing on top. You know, that's temptation. And and many of us, we have succumbed. We have given in to temptation because it's so hard to say no to these things that are so appealing. But let let me explain something to you. Being tempted isn't a sin. There's a lot of temptations in this room and there are varying temptations and many of you feel guilty that you even have the temptation. But it's not being tempted that's a sin, it's what you do with your temptation that determines whether or not it's a sin. The reason I know that is because Jesus Christ himself was tempted. He was tempted. Uh, The Bible says he was tempted in every way that we're tempted. Actually, Jesus endured the greatest temptation known to man. It is the very first temptation. It was Jesus' last temptation. It is the primary uh, temptation that all of us will face. It's the ultimate temptation, which, which all of us will have to resist. Let's read together. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. Let's all stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. Here's the dilemma that Jesus faces in our passage today. Obedience to God, which will result for Jesus great, great distress and pain, or disobedience to God, which will probably result in Jesus living a life of luxury, privilege, and power. What will Jesus do? Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little further, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and he found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting enough? The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Jesus, thank you for your obedience to the Father. Thank you for your sacrifice. Without you, each and every one of us would be doomed forever and ever. Lord, we're grateful for you today. I pray as we consider this passage that you will help us to resist every temptation in our life. Deliver us from the evil one, that you may be glorified. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, I'd ask that you take a moment just pray for the people around you. Pray for those people that are watching online. We've got a lot of people that are sick, trying to get over illness or surgery and different things, just pray for them. Pray for all the people in eastern Kentucky that are trying to recover. Take a moment. Pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> So uh, the account that we're reading today, that we're studying, these are the last few hours of Jesus' natural life. Everything, everything in his life has been leading to this moment. The virgin birth, uh, all of the miracles, all of the sermons, all of the teachings, the walking on the water, the demon slaying, everything that Jesus has ever done is leading to this pivotal moment. This is actually the pivotal moment in human history. And it's easy to overlook how serious this is because this will determine the fate of humanity. Will Jesus be obedient and save the world, or will Jesus be disobedient and save himself? Great cost to Jesus, great temptation to Jesus. Verse 32 Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a Hebrew word, it uh, literally means olive press. Uh, this was a garden uh, full of an olive grove. It was probably well manicured, it was right outside of Jerusalem. This was prime real estate. And uh, this is a place where at the center of this garden uh, existed a millstone. And this millstone would be rolled over top of olives to squeeze out the olive oil. Jesus frequented this place. He came to this place very often. Uh, When we read through the Gospels, what we'll see, almost every time that Jesus is in Jerusalem, he will make his way to this garden to pray. It must be a beautiful place, a place where Jesus found a lot of peace and comfort. And so his disciples were very familiar with this place, and, and later on in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about this is how Judas knew where to find Jesus. So Jesus tells, he brings his disciples to this place, and he, and he says to them, uh, I want you to stay here, and, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray in the garden. So they kind of stop there, kind of on the fringe of the garden, and then, verse 33, he took Peter, James, and John with him. They go further into the garden, and he began, Jesus began to be deeply distressed, and troubled so Jesus brings his inner circle with him these are like his closest friends because he needs their support because he is deeply not just distressed not just troubled deeply distressed and troubled I want to show you a picture here of uh, this is a a scene you've probably seen how many of you have seen this picture or something like it before and so when we think about the garden of the Gethsemane when we think about the last hours of Jesus's life it's easy to picture this now I I can see the darkness there but he kind of looks tranquil doesn't he Kind of looks like a peaceful place. Can you imagine like the birds chirping in the background? Maybe, maybe a stream of water kind of flowing along. And it seems kind of a peaceful event, doesn't it? Maybe you could, you could hear instrumental music playing in the background and Jesus just kind of quietly, calmly praying. But is that what Mark describes? Look at verse 34. Jesus said, I am deeply grieved. This is one work, one word in the Greek, and it means besieged by grief. in other words, Jesus feels like he is surrounded by despair. in other words, there is nowhere to run from the anxiety. Have you ever been there that you are so deeply distressed by something, and you try and you try and uh you know, distract yourself. You're trying to entertain yourself. you try to take your mind to a different place. you try trying to get away from the situation, but no matter where you go, you could go to Disney World, and you could eat all of the goodies there in Disney World. You could take all the pharmaceuticals you want. You could drink as much whiskey or bourbon as you want, but you can't run away from the problem because you're surrounded by it. Have you ever felt that way before? Jesus says, this is about to kill me. I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus says, remain here and stay awake. In other words, I don't want to be alone right now. I need your support. Some important teaching moment we'll come back to in a minute. But I want you to notice that in Jesus' darkest hour, he doesn't isolate. Instead, he asks for the prayers and the presence of his closest friends. We'll come back to it. Verse 35, he went a little bit further. Just the stones throw away, the disciples, the three, they can still hear Jesus. And Jesus fell to the ground, not on his knees, not, not just kind of peaceful, tranquil, calm. He falls on his face, tears streaming down. One of the other biographers of this event says that Jesus at this point began sweating blood. This is the pit of despair. It's kind of crazy when you really think about this scene this this scene paints the picture of the god man in absolute anguish the son of god the savior of the world the water walker the demon slayer the miracle worker the god that seemed like he could do anything and everything he is overwhelmed beating the ground weeping and wailing and begging to the father if it's possible this hour might pass from here now Don't get this twisted. This is not weakness that we see. We live in a culture where men will say, a man doesn't cry. Let me tell you what kind of man doesn't cry. An insecure man doesn't cry. It's not that real men don't cry. It's because Jesus is anything but weak. Jesus is the strongest human who has ever lived. This is not weakness we're seeing here. This is Jesus' humanity that we're seeing here. Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. The weeping and the wailing and the anguish and the despair is part of being human. Every single one of you will have, have had, an event, a moment like this. The next time you're in the garden of despair, I want you to be reminded of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He can relate to your pain. He can understand your sorrow you are not alone jesus was tempted and tried in every way that we are and yet he overcame and because he overcame he can empower you to overcome another reason that is so important that mark he brings out he doesn't just want us to see Um, that Jesus can relate to us, he also wants us to see the force, the great force of this temptation. Jesus is begging the Father, please don't make me do this. If there's any other way, please take this away from me. So why is it that Jesus, the God-man, the water walker, the demon slayer, the God that seems like nothing is too hard for Him, why is he so upset? Verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This was Jesus' prayer. And he's deeply grieved because he knows that in just a few hours, he will suffer and die for the sins of all the world. And in his humanity, because we all have an innate desire of self-preservation and pain avoidance, in his humanity, Jesus has a great desire to avoid the cross, even if that means forsaking his calling, And to make it harder, God could take it all away. Jesus says, all things are possible for you. You see, the Bible teaches us that Jesus, he could have called down armies of angels and completely obliterated the Roman Empire. He didn't have to fight this battle. He could have had other people fight this battle and and preserved himself, but it would have come at the cost of all humanity. Nobody would be saved Jesus could have just got up and walked away from the garden and hidden out for the rest of his life. He could have lived in luxury as a God king. And so in this great temptation, Jesus, he preaches slash praise. God, not what I want, but what you want. God, don't let my weakness overpower me. Help me to trust in you. Verse 37, then he came and found them sleeping. In his darkest hour, Jesus' closest friends abandoned him, functionally abandoned him. They fell asleep on him. It's a sign for you, in your darkest moments, you're going to feel alone because there's certain battles that you're going to have to fight that functionally nobody can be there with you. Jesus is in that place. And he says, Peter, to Peter, he says to Peter, Simon. Uh, Jesus, if you remember, Jesus had kind of given Simon a new name Uh, Peter means rock. And so Jesus, um, he calls Peter by his old name because Peter is acting like his old self. Earlier, he told earlier this night, he told Jesus, for you, I will go and die. But now just a few hours later, he's not even able to pray and stay awake. Verse 38, stay awake and pray so you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. Peter loves Jesus, and he wants to do right by him. You love Jesus, and you want to do right by him, but the flesh is weak. His body is tired. His mind isn't focused. In the same way, you see, Jesus can relate. His spirit is willing. The God-man wants to honor the Father and fulfill his calling, even if it costs him everything, but at the same time, his flesh is weak. Jesus is afraid and overwhelmed if peter the rock that the church was built on was tempted if jesus the god man was tempted you will be tempted you will be tried you will be pushed to your very limits and in those moments listen friends we cannot rely on our own willpower to overcome the temptation because the flesh is weak Peter was weak. Jesus needed help even in his greatest moment. We've got to be alert and we've got to be watchful. We've got to pray. You're not just going to power through the temptation. You need prayer and you need watchfulness. So Jesus does what he tells Peter to do, verse 39. Once again, he went and prayed, saying the same thing over And over and over again, he prays the same exact thing. All things are possible for you. Please take this cup away. Not my will, but you. All things are possible. Please take this cup away. Not my will, but yours. All things are possible. Please take this cup away. Not my will, but yours. All things are possible. Please take this cup away. But not my will, but yours. Over and over and over again. Verse 40, and again, he came and he found them sleeping Because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Jesus' closest friends in his darkest moment sleeping when they should have been watching to their shame. They didn't even know what to say. They didn't even have an excuse because they knew how important this was to Jesus. They could see the, the, the drops of blood coming down off of his brow. They knew this was a big deal and yet they could not they could not stand awake with Jesus. They could not deliver for him. Unfortunately, we're living in an age where we got too many Christians that are willfully and weakly letting Jesus down. They're sleeping on their sin. They're sleeping on the spirit of the age. They're sleeping on Satan. And so if you would, if you don't get anything else today, I pray that you hear me when I say this. Sin kills The spirit of the age lies, and Satan is real. You need to understand that there is an enemy. There are consequences to your decisions. All this stuff is not a game that we're playing. This is true life. This is true reality. And because so many Christians aren't alert to this, aren't prayerful against this, many of you are drifting off to sleep. You're drifting into your old habits. You're drifting away from Christ. You're drifting into temptation. You see, friends, a lot of us, we just want to put things on cruise control and just roll through life. But the truth of the matter is, if you just roll through life, if you're just drifting along in life, do you think you drift in a positive direction or a negative direction? Whenever you drift, you're not going to drift towards productivity. You're not going to drift towards doing the good things. When you drift, when you're in cruise control, you're going to drift off the road. You're gonna drift off the cliff. You're gonna drift into those things that are bad and harmful and destructive to your shame and maybe even to your destruction. So what can, we, what can be done? How do we resist the temptation? That irresistible thing that looks so tempting, how, how do we resist it? Jesus told Peter, watch and pray. Unfortunately, Peter's like a lot of us. He had to learn the hard way. He was sleeping on the enemy And later that night, the accuser came and accused Tim. And Peter, in a a, a spirit of self-preservation, did not honor Christ and said he denied Christ in the strongest possible terms. You remember this story. To his great shame. He denied Christ three times before the rooster crows, and then that very night, he breaks down in tears and he runs off. He thought he'd never be forgiven for that. But the resurrected Christ found Peter. Beautiful story. David told us a little bit about it a couple weeks ago and peter after being restored by christ went on to be one of the most loyal christ followers of all time now i want i want you to hear something that peter said years later looking back on this moment first peter chapter 5 verse 8 peter says be sober minded be watchful be sober minded we got so many christians that are not sober they're drunk maybe not drunk on alcohol and maybe not drunk on pharmaceuticals but numb numb minded by tiktok and instagram and youtube and facebook so distracted by this world that we're living in maybe not drunk on alcohol or pharmaceuticals maybe comatose by consumerism and gluttony too too distracted too numb too too preoccupied to be attentive to the adversary Peter says your adversary your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour there is an enemy whether you acknowledge him or not whether you believe that he is real or not there is evil personified and he would not want nothing more than to completely destroy you and everything that you hold dear He's coming for your marriage. He's coming for your kids. He's coming for your future. He's coming for the city. He's coming for your very soul. And if you're not attentive, you know what the results are going to be? What many in our world are experiencing, affairs and divorce, apostate kids, depraved city, demonic people. We could go on and on and on just because people aren't attentive, just because people aren't prayerful. So what does Peter say? Look at the very next verse. Be watchful, resist him, resist the devil, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. You see, Peter associates being watchful with being connected. Peter associates resistance with being associated, being part of a family of believers. Jesus, earlier in his ministry, he sends out his disciples on an important mission He gives them power to cast out demons, but he sends them out, do you remember? Two by two. He he later went on, Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. Whenever they're gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. On this very night, he brings the three into the inner sanctuary of the garden and he wants them to pray with him. What's the point of all that? You can't fight the devil. You can't resist temptation. You can't, Do what God needs you to do alone. Too many of us are trying to do our faith journey. We're trying to do what's right alone without any help. You need a faith family because the fruit is too enticing. The sacrifice is too great. The flesh is too weak. You need a faith family who will be with you in your despair and who will pull you out of your depravity. And you need to pray because the spirit is weak or the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. You see, this isn't a battle of the will. If, if you're just relying on your willpower, you're going to fail. This is a spiritual battle, and so you need spiritual weapons. Jesus needed to surround himself with his brothers, his faith family, and he needed to pray. How much more, if the water walker, the demon slayer, the son of God, the savior of the world, if he needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray when it comes to resisting temptation? Prayer is our most effective weapon against the devices of the enemy. And some of you, you're here today, and you've never really been trained. You're like, I'd like to pray. I just don't know how to pray. Well, look at Jesus' prayer. What does Jesus say? He says, Abba, Father. That word Abba is the Greek word. It's the most informal, the most personal word for Father. It's like us saying Dad or Papa. And so Jesus, when he approaches God in prayer, he doesn't use like King James, he doesn't like, you know, write out this dissertation and have this 15 minute long prayer and it's, everything is like outlined out and it all, every word has to be perfect. He talks to God like a father, like his dad. How many of you have kids? Let me see it. Now, my girls, I've got three girls, I've got a newborn son. If my girls, if they ever come to me with tears in their eyes, don't you think, no matter what words they use or how well-formulated their sentences are, don't you think that as a father, I'm gonna to listen to them, right? I'm gonna be so tuned in. I'll put, I'll put aside all the other distractions. I'll put my phone down. If I'm working on something, I'll put that down, and I'm gonna tune in to my child. If me, as a sinful man, is that way towards his children, how much more is our perfect heavenly and father attentive to us when we come to him in prayer? It's not complicated to pray. Jesus, he prayed the same thing over and over and over again. You remember that again and again. What did He say? "Father, everything is possible for you. If it's possible, take this cup for me, not my will, but yours. Everything's possible you for you. Please take this cup away, not my will, but yours over and 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 over again. It's not not King James prayer, not poetic, not, pow- not, not a Pentecostal. That's not our most powerful prayer. Our most powerful prayers are persistent prayers. Our most powerful prayers is just coming to the throne room of God and asking over and over and just keep knocking on the door of heaven. Many of you, you've been praying for something to happen for years and years and years. And because you're not seeing the results that you want to see, you've given up on prayer. Can I remind you today don't stop praying. Don't stop believing. Don't stop having faith. If you don't ask, God won't give. So keep praying. Keep praying. It doesn't have to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, all this. Just go to your dad. Go to your father. Go to your papa in heaven, and say, Lord, I need you. I need, come through. And either, God is either going to change the situation or he's going to change you. Be reminded today. It's prayer and watchfulness. Now, resisting temptation is so difficult because the forbidden fruit is so appealing. The lover you can't have is the most attractive one. The The restricted experience is the most exciting one. And on top of that, the sacrifice required to obey God is oftentimes painful. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you got to pick up your cross daily and follow me. Do you realize the cross was an instrument of execution and torture? So Jesus is saying, I want you to pick that up and follow me. That's a painful calling. Jesus, on the other side of obedience to the Father, was abandonment and injustice and beatings and thrones and nails and death. And so on one hand, you've got a forbidden fruit that looks so appetizing, You've got this thing that you're not supposed to have, but you feel like you're not supposed to have it because God is just holding out on you and your life would be fulfilled if you could just have this lover, if you could just have this forbidden experience, if you could just have this forbidden substance, if you could just have this thing, then you would be satisfied. Then your life would complete. And on the other hand, you've got Jesus saying, hey, if you want to follow me, die to yourself. That's the temptation. That's the dilemma that we're all placed in. Is it your will or is it God's will be done in your life? That's where Jesus was. So why should you be motivated to resist temptation, especially when you think you can get away with it? Two things, number one, it is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. Now this is something you may have never heard preached before because we've grown up, we've all been a part of a church culture that encourages consumerism And we're just gonna preach the softest messages that we can so we can attract the largest crowd that we can. And so this is what we've heard before over and over and over and over again. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. How many of you have heard that? God hates the sin but he loves the sinner. And it sounds really good, but is that what the Bible teaches? Psalm chapter five, verse five. The boastful cannot stand in your sight you hate all evil doers why why is Jesus so upset in the garden like why is he so overwhelmed he doesn't mention the beating the lashing the pulling out of his beard he doesn't mention a crown of thorns he doesn't mention the nails he doesn't mention the cross he doesn't mention anything what does Jesus say that he wants to pass from him do you remember He says, take away this cup. What what cup is he talking about? Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I'm sending you drink from it. You see, God in his holy righteousness cannot tolerate sin. He can't. And so that's why... That's why Psalm 5:5, the beautiful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You should say yes and amen to that. Not God hates the sin or hates the sin and loves the sinner. God is a pushover, he'll, he'll put up with anything and everything. You don't want that. Not at the end of the day because people have done evil to you, have they not? <laughs> People have done evil in this world, and if a God that is gonna see their evil and, not, and just, just overlook it, not punish evil, that's not a good God, is it? And so this is what we see here on, on, on the other side of the garden. The justice of God demands that every single sin, from stealing a pack of gum to doing the most heinous, barbaric crime you could ever imagine, Every single sin must be punished. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ took on himself God's wrath for all the sins of all the believers throughout all of time. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He himself is our atoning sacrifice of our sins. And not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. And so this is what we see. The blood of Jesus is so precious. It is so pure that Jesus could forgive. The potential to forgive all the sins of all the world is there. But it has to be received. The blood has to be applied. Forgiveness has to be asked for. Repentance has to take place. And so because Jesus had no sin, he deserved no punishment. And because he deserved no punishment, he could, could, in effect, take the punishment of other people's sins. Because he didn't have any sins to pay for, he could pay for your sins. And so all of your sins will either be paid for by Christ, if he is your Lord, or by you, if he is not. Your sins are going to be paid for. One way or another, every single sin is going to be paid for. It's either going to be paid by Christ or it's going to be paid by you. And so this is what we have to do. We have to repent of our sins, confess and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior in order to be forgiven. Or if you want to continue in your sin and be the own Lord of your life, then you will be condemned. And so... When we give in to temptation, you every time you, you say yes to the thing that you know in your heart that you should say no to, or you say no in your heart, the thing that you should say yes to, every time you're doing that, you are either adding to Christ's punishment or you are adding to your condemnation. You see, resisting temptation is difficult. But not resisting temptation is deadly. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. It's a terrible thing. So we got to resist it. It's going to come back on us one way or another, or it's going to come back on Jesus. Could you imagine to say, I love somebody, and then do the thing that continues to hurt them? Could you imagine that? As a Christian, every time you willfully sin, that's what you're doing to Jesus. It's a terrible thing terrible thing here's the other reason that you should resist all temptation christ is worthy look at verse 41 then he came a third time and said to them are you still sleeping resting enough the time has come see the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners enough jesus no more wavering no more weeping no more wailing it's go time verse 42 get up let's go see my betrayers near with those words Jesus successfully resisted the greatest temptation known to man. With those words, Jesus says, my betrayer is near. I am going to be betrayed. I am going to the cross. I've resolved myself to do it. No more wavering. No more asking for another way out. God's will be done in my life. With that, in that moment, Jesus said, I'm not going to preserve myself. I'm not going to elevate myself. I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to do the difficult thing the Father has asked me to do. You see, this event is the reversal of the very first temptation. Do you remember the very first temptation? Genesis chapter three. You remember this? This would be good homework. If you've never read this story, you should read. It's really interesting. God creates heavens and the earth. He creates a man and a woman. He places them in a garden. This is a perfect garden. In the garden, there's all sorts of trees. God says you can eat from any tree in the garden as much as you want. Live your best life. Except for there's one place that I don't want you to go. There's one tree I don't want you to touch. There's one fruit I don't want you to eat from. If you eat from it, you will surely die. What happens? Snake slithers in because that's what the snake does. He slithers in and he starts to tell these little lies. And Adam and and Eve believe the lies. And so this is what we see. I've got a little uh, graphic here for you to help you see this. Adam was in the perfect garden. Jesus was in the pressing garden. Adam had Eve. Jesus was alone. Adam was confronted with a forbidden fruit. Jesus was confronted with the cup of fury. Adam was commanded to abstain. Jesus was commanded to take. Adam was tempted. Did God really say? Jesus was tempted. Is there another way? Adam disobeyed. Christ obeyed. Adam hid in the bushes. You remember that. Jesus didn't hide in the bushes. Adam blamed his bride. Jesus died for his bride. Adam was found guilty. Jesus was found innocent. Adam was taken out of the garden. Jesus was taken out of the garden. Adam was cursed with thorns. Jesus was crowned with thorns. Adam, he he sweat from his brow, and he had calluses on his hands. Jesus sweat blood, and he had nails in his. Adam was separated from the Father. Christ was accepted by the Father. You see, Christ did what Adam failed to do. Adam's rebellion brought all of us to death. You know why? Because each and every one of us have, follow, have followed in the footsteps of Adam. Each and every one of us placed even in the perfect conditions, given everything at our disposal, and God says no to one thing, and all of us are drawn, all of us are attracted, all of us are tempted with that one thing, and many of us have grabbed out and taken hold of it for ourselves to disobey and dishonor God. And as a result, each and every one of us deserves to be punished. On the other hand, Christ did for you what you could not do for yourself. He lived the perfect life and he died a sinless death so that you could be accepted by God. His obedience brought us life. Jesus endured the pressing garden so that you might have the perfect garden. And he did all of it while you were sleeping. You see, that's the thing that blows me away. I didn't do anything to save me. The Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What can a dead person do? This is an easy answer to this. What can a dead person do? Absolutely nothing. That's what you were. Spiritually dead. But God made you alive in Christ. He did the work that you couldn't do. So in a world that follows in Adam's footsteps, in a world that says to God, God, not your will, my will be done. In a world that is so tempting to consume the forbidden fruit because our world is saying there's no such thing as forbidden fruit. The only thing that's sinful is to not be true to yourself and your own desires. Isn't that what our world is saying? No such thing as forbidden fruit. There's no such thing as sin. Even though the Bible is telling us over and over, no, these things will lead to your death. These things will lead to the destruction of the world. Stay away. Resist. In a world that encourages you to avoid the cost of following Christ. Don't we live in a world that makes everything so easy? How many of you get aggravated when you go to Starbucks and it takes more than three minutes for them to get you your coffee, right? A world full of tasty microwave food. Some of it is actually really good. In a world of high-speed internet, internet that could blow your eyeballs right out of your head. We live in a world that encourages you to be soft, encourages you to seek convenience, and Christ says, no, die to yourself. Now this is what you've got to decide today. The next time you're confronted with temptation, do you really love and trust God? Do you really love and trust Jesus? If you love Jesus, you're not gonna add to his punishment. And if you trust God, then confront it with this temptation because this is what temptation is. That forbidden fruit, the, the enemy says, the Lord, the God, God, he just told you you can't eat from that because he knows if you eat from that, you'll be like him. God's trying to hold something back for you. In other words, there's a life in the forbidden fruit. That's what our world is telling us. If you want to live your most incredible life, your most fulfilling life, your most amazing life, then you need to follow your own heart and do your own thing and pursue this, this sinful stuff this stuff that goes against God's plan and purpose. Adam took the fruit that he thought would give him life and what did it result in? Death. Jesus drank the cup that looked like it was gonna kill him and what did it result in? His resurrection. Do you see, as Christians we believe, even if I have to walk through death to to obey Christ, on the other side of that, I will be resurrected. May you be empowered today to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, not in the footsteps of Adam. Let's all stand together. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the way you love us. And Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, if there's any person in this room who is living life their own way, I pray that you'll help them to see how foolish that is. Help them to see that we can't save ourselves. We can't chart our own path. As good as we try to be, our will is too weak. Our flesh is too weak. We can't do it. We're gonna make mistakes, destructive mistakes, deadly mistakes, and so, Lord, I pray today that the people in this room, each and every one of us, we will be convicted of our sin and our selfishness and our waywardness, and, Lord, I pray that we'll be empowered today by your Holy Spirit to love and trust you with everything that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing a song. This is a song uh, of invitation, remembrance, prayer. On either side of the stage, we have these emblems, uh, crackers and juice. This is for any believer who wants to be reminded of the sacrifice and the victory that our Lord Jesus Christ has won. Also, we have kneeling pads here right in front of the stage. And this is a place for you to pray. Uh, if you're here today and you've got any sort of burden, it doesn't have to be a sin, maybe you're just struggling with anxiety, maybe you are in the, uh, the garden of pressing right now. This is that place you can just fall, fall right in front of the Lord and just say, Dad, Father, I need you. I need you, I need you. Maybe that's all you can pray. I need you, I need you, I need you. And this is what I believe, this is what I've seen time and time again. God will meet you in this place. Maybe you're here today and, and you know in your heart you've just been like Adam. Rarely, rarely, rarely do you, uh, do you say no to your fleshly desires. The Bible says sin is fun for the season. And it may be, man. You might might be living your best life right now, but let me tell you something. The end of that road is death. The end of that road is destruction. For you and the people, that all your decisions influence in effect. The best thing you can do, the only decision that you really need to make right now is to come to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I surrender my life to you I trust you, and I'm going to follow you. And in that moment, the Bible says, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just. He'll forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness." In that moment, the blood of Jesus will be placed on your soul, and every single one of your sins will be washed away, past, present, and future. You'll be forgiven, and you'll be empowered to walk in the ways of the Lord. And so, however the Lord's speaking to you today, please, 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 I beg you, Listen. As we sing the song, come.